You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Amen. Thank you, Leah, for reading God's word. I mentioned earlier today that it is Palm Sunday. Um, And this year for, for Easter and for Palm Sunday, rather than pushing pause on what we're doing in our sermon series and, and say, looking at a particular text uh, like the triumphal entry and, and looking at the particular accounts of Jesus's death and resurrection, which we will refer to and look at. I've decided to continue preaching through the Gospel of Mark because in many ways, uh, it just so happens that the content uh, of Mark chapter eight, which will be in today and next Sunday, is just as fitting uh, for us to understand the, the meaning and the significance of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday as it is to look at those separate texts. <clears throat> and I've chosen to do that uh, because I, I think one, it reminds us the value of walking through God's word. There's uh, value in, in just walking through God's word and allowing it to define what we talk about as a church and how surprising it is uh, that God's word is relevant for us in, in different seasons and in different ways. And lest you think I could always plan it uh, just so right, um, I'm often uh, surprised myself at how it falls out as we look to unpack God's word, how it leads us to specific texts that meet us uh, at just the right time. <clears throat> of course, there's nothing wrong with taking a pause and looking at various texts as we see fit. But uh, just an encouragement to us as a church, we preach through, uh, largely preach through books of the Bible with a occasional series that, t- that touch on different topics. Um, but in doing so, we, we believe as a core value as a church that we're a people under authority. We're committed to God's word and being committed to God's word means that we allow God's word uh, to set the tone and direction uh, for what we uh, look at as a church and, and how we operate. And so uh, it's just an encouragement to us in that regard. But uh, I say that because um, I, I do want to, to, to read from Mark chapter 11 about the triumphal entry, which marks um, Palm Sunday. Uh, our kids will uh, no doubt have stories to tell about Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday over lunch as you talk with them. Uh, you yourself uh, perhaps are reading through scripture and reflecting uh, on these various topics and passages as we enter in uh, to uh, this this week, uh, this Holy Week, and celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, There's a great resource that walks through the final week of Christ that's put out, uh, I believe, by TGC, Justin Taylor, and another um, New Testament scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, have a a book, but they've uh, distilled it down into a blog, which takes you through the final week uh, of Jesus' life. I would commend you if you look that up on TGC. Uh, I think it's .org, maybe .com. I can't remember. Uh, they may own them both, uh, but uh, look up the Gospel Coalition uh, for that. I would encourage you to, to read through and reflect on uh, these uh, passages this week and thinking about the significance and the meaning of Jesus's death and resurrection. But today is, is Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we're now at really the center point of the Gospel of Mark, which is a turning point in the, in the Gospel as a whole. Uh, we have four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those four Gospels, they all tell the same story from a different vantage point. 
Some of them have some um, unique stories that they tell based on eyewitness accounts. And and, in many ways, they'll share a lot of shared information. Uh, The triumphal entry in Palm Sunday is one of those things where they share some uh, significant overlap between all the gospel accounts. But these gospel accounts tell us uh, who Jesus is and they tell us what Jesus came to do. And and they tell us the significance of his death and his resurrection and uh, how it was that he gathered a group of disciples who followed him and carried on uh, the mission that he entrusted to them. And in doing so, they they give us this picture of and the gospel of Mark in particular structured in a way where the first half is seeking to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus? And then the second half is seeking to ask and answer the question, what is his mission? Uh, Who is Jesus and what is his mission? Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Those are the two questions. And so Mark chapter 8 kind of brings us to this fulcrum point of understanding who Jesus is. And in fact, we're going to get Jesus himself asking his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? That's the, that's the climax of the gospel. Who do you say that I am in the gospel of Mark? And then from that unpacks just what kind of Messiah and Savior Jesus is. Just what kind of king he truly is. And in Mark chapter 11, we get this situation where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Basically, after this experience in Mark chapter 8, especially verses 34 through 38, which we'll look at next week, where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection and then invites people to take up their cross, die to themselves and follow him. After that, pretty much everything is Jesus headed to Jerusalem. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it's a glorious day. If you turn to Mark chapter 11, it tells us that as Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And when you go there, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie that colt, that donkey, and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? And say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back immediately. And so they go and do that. And it unfolds just like Jesus said uh, as they were untying it. Somebody said, hey, what are you doing? They say, the Lord has need of it. And they say, "Okay, we'll take it and he'll bring it back. Everything unfolds just like Jesus says. And they bring the the cult to Jesus. And as Jesus was riding in Jerusalem, verse seven, it says that they uh, they threw their cloaks on the the donkey and he sat on it. and, And then many spread their cloaks on the road. And they took leafy branches uh, and they took them and they had cut them from the fields and uh, they went before Jesus and all those who followed around him. They came around Jesus and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And it says that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, came into the temple. It was late. And so he left uh, with his disciples to go to Bethany, which was just a short distance from Jerusalem. Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was hailed as the son of David, as the one who would bring salvation. Hosanna means God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they understood that Jesus had, had done miracles that spoke to his divine authority and power. They had heard Jesus' teaching, how he had forgiven sins and how he had proclaimed the kingdom of God. And they said, now the time has come. Uh, The the son of David has come into Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They praised Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. But it would just be a short period of time within a week 
that Jesus would be hung up on a Roman cross just outside of Jerusalem. It's a classic case of, um, no doubt, the, the crowds were slightly different. It's a, it's a favorite uh, story of preachers to say that the crowd is fickle and the crowd that entered into Jerusalem was the same crowd that crucified him. No doubt there was some mixture. It wasn't all the same crowd, but perhaps some of the same people. I don't want to press the point uh, further than the scriptures allow us, but, uh, but it's striking to see Jesus praised as bringing God's salvation as he rode into Jerusalem, and then to see the horror of him hung on a cross just outside of Jerusalem in a week's time. There was a sense of misunderstanding, not rightly understanding who Jesus was and what he had come to do. There was a, a sense of knowing that something was unique and special about Jesus, but not fully grasping it and not understanding how he was going to accomplish the bringing about of this coming kingdom that they had praised. And so it's fitting as we look at that in Mark chapter 11 to, to then flip back to Mark chapter 8, because as Jesus prepared his disciples, and remember the gospel of Mark is written, as all the gospels are, uh, I think with two uh, primary, uh, primary purposes. There's a sense of, um, of testifying to who Jesus is, giving an account of who Jesus is for those who are yet to believe that they might come to believe. The Gospel of John makes it especially clear when it says, I've written these things to you so that you might believe and by believing have life in the name of Jesus. That's John chapter 20, verse 21. But the Gospel of Mark uh, doesn't give us that clear of a purpose statement, but we see all throughout that Mark is trying to help us, based on the testimony of Peter, have a right understanding of who Jesus is so that his largely Roman Gentile audience might understand who Jesus is and believe and trust in him. That's the, that's the implication of the gospel. So as you read the gospels, they're, they're, they're not, if you take them at their word, they're not just Jesus's followers making up cool stories about him so that we might be impressed and want to follow him. But they actually are giving us an account, an eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did and how the people around him responded. And one of the reasons I take them to be true is because the people who are responsible for writing them often are presented in the most unflattering light. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark, who is an associate of the Apostle Paul, but uh, Christian tradition tells us that he largely writes at the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And as you look at Peter here in a moment, or next week as we look at Peter, Jesus is going to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. Like Peter is the top dog of the disciples. And Jesus looks at him and says, Satan is influencing you. That's not the kind of thing that you would want to write if you were trying to impress yourself to others, but it's the kind of thing that you would write if you were actually saying what Jesus said. And you were trying to articulate how Jesus' uh, Jesus's disciples wrestled to understand who he was and the significance of, of why he had come. And so we have this account in the, in the Gospel of Mark where... We're trying to make sense of who Jesus is, and they're presenting this picture uh, to help us understand who Jesus is so that we might believe and have life and salvation. But also, they're helping the disciples. It's kind of a, a discipleship manual, if you will. It's written with believers in mind as well. Not only those who have yet to believe, but those who have believed to help them in following Jesus. The, the idea of being a Christian is that we follow after Jesus. Jesus' invitation wasn't to, um, to, uh, to, to take on a particular name or to join a particular group. First and foremost, it was to follow him. And in following him, you get welcomed in to his family, which is the church. 
And we as a church uh, are committed not just to being like a family, but being a family as brothers and sisters united to Christ with Jesus as our Lord. And, and so when we, when we think about what Jesus was inviting people to do, he was saying, follow me. And so the gospel accounts are meant to help us know how to follow him. And so they give us these lessons along the way of helping us understand what it means to follow Jesus. And, and that's what we're going to see today. The, the struggle to see and believe is at the heart of our passage in Mark chapter 8, 1 through 30. We'll see throughout this passage the emphasis that's put on sight and the need to see Jesus rightly and to believe in Jesus. And so the first thing I want us to see is the truth about Jesus. In verses 1 through 10, the truth about Jesus that I think is overarching throughout this passage, but particularly here in these 10 verses, is that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. You heard it read that Jesus, uh, it says in those days, had a great crowd that had been gathered around him. And we know the backstory here is Jesus has gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and has been ministering primarily in Gentile regions. In, in the Jewish world, there was kind of two groups, the Jews and everyone else, the Gentiles, those who weren't a part of the people uh, of God who had received the promises of Abraham and Moses and David. And, um, and, 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 and we see that there's this divide, there's this gap. And we learned last week Jesus' mission is he came to fulfill the promises of Israel so that the blessings of salvation would go from Israel to the nations, that all people everywhere would be able to receive and respond to this good news about Jesus. And and we see uh, that Jesus is continuing to minister in this area. And now, as you heard Mark 8 read, you might have felt a certain sense of deja vu. Uh, Like, haven't I heard this before? Uh, There was a big crowd. They were hungry. Jesus had compassion on them. He told the disciples they needed to get something to eat. The disciples were like, uh, you know, Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere and there's no you know, good restaurant nearby. You know, like we can't feed all of them. And, and, and so they said, how are we going to get uh, that feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? It's the exact same question uh, that had previously been asked in Mark chapter six. And Jesus says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven. And, uh, and then there are a few fish that we are told as well. And, and he had the, the people sit down and Jesus took the bread and the fish and he broke it. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set before the people. And it says that the people were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. Mark chapter eight, verse eight. If you flip over to Mark chapter six and you look and starting in verse 30, you'll see a very similar rundown take place. Jesus in Mark chapter six fed 5000 men, which most likely means that there were women and children as well who ate here. We're not told that there were just men. It just says that he fed 4000 people. We have two accounts of Jesus miraculously feeding a thousand thousands of people at once. Now, some people look at the Bible and critically say, well, clearly that just happened. If it happened at all, it happened once. And then they've just told the story twice to, to make it fit. Uh, and and on, on the surface, when you look at it, there's there's a lot of parallels. Uh, and one of the most striking parallels to me is that the disciples, you would think after seeing Jesus feed 5000, that when Jesus said, hey, there's a lot of people here. And if I have compassion on them, if I send them back, they'll faint on the way uh, we need to feed them. You would think in that moment they would be like, I've seen Jesus do this before. I know what you're about to do. Jesus, do you want us to have them sit down in groups so that you can feed them? 
but they, they don't do that. They, they ask the same question. They say, how can we feed these people, verse 4, with, uh, with bread here in this desolate place? How, how are we going to do this, Jesus? Now, <clears throat> it'd be easy to, 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 to be like, uh, to knock on the disciples and be like, how could you not remember? Like, we're not told exactly how much time had passed between when he fed the 5,000 and when he fed the 4,000 here. Uh, but not, not very much time had passed. So you're like, how could you not remember? How could you be asking this question? It would make sense for you to remember what they had done, what Jesus had done. And, and I don't want to take it too hard on the disciples because what you continually see with the disciples is they are... They, they often are not presumptuous against Jesus. They don't just expect Jesus to do miracles for them whenever they ask. And so to, to think that they perhaps we should we should honestly look at them and say, how could you not remember? And yet at the same time, we could also uh, have have ourselves a little humility to remember that the disciples aren't just going around expecting Jesus to do things. And perhaps in the moment of them asking it, they go, could it be that he would do this twice? Could it be that he would do this here with these people, with these Gentiles primarily? I know he did it when we were outside the Sea of Galilee with our Jewish brothers and sisters. But could he do it with this group of people? Could that be happening here? We don't know exactly what's going on in their minds. But there's enough difference between Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 6, 30 through 44, that, that I present to you that this isn't just one thing happening, being told in two different ways. But as the Bible presents it, it's actually two different events that have happened that have two important points. Just consider these differences. We're told that Jesus had a great cat crowd gathered around them and he had been with them for three days. We're told that Jesus had been with them one day in Mark chapter 6. We're also told uh, that, that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples say these people need to be sent away. They're getting hungry. What should we do, Jesus? Here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus takes the initiative and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've now been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. We, we, we see the similarity of his compassion both in Mark chapter 6 as well as here in Mark chapter 8. Uh, and we see he provides in a similar way, but there are differences. There are different numbers of uh, loaves of bread that they already had. And there are different numbers of, of fish that were, uh, that were available. Um, and even though he dispenses the food in the same manner, we see that he starts with a different amount. There were five loaves and two fish in Mark chapter 6. There are seven loaves and some fish, a few small fish, it says in verse 7. But we know for sure that there are two different circumstances unless you just doubt the words of Jesus because if you skip down in Mark chapter 8, verse 18, as Jesus, uh, in a moment we'll get to why Jesus is saying this, but as Jesus asked the disciples who are slow to remember what had taken place, he says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many broken pieces of bread did you gather? And they said 12. And then he said, and the seven loaves that I took to feed the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take then? And they said to him, seven. The disciples may have forgotten, but Jesus certainly did not forget what he did. And he asked them, do you not remember how I fed the 5,000? Do you not remember how, I, how many loaves you gathered afterwards? And now how many loaves you just gathered after I fed the 4,000? Two different events. Very similar dynamics at play. But it reveals the same truth about Jesus. The same truth in Mark chapter 6 is the same truth here in Mark chapter 8. 
And we see how through the compassion of Jesus, He meets the needs of people. And the truth underneath it all is that Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough for the people of Israel who have been longing for God to fulfill His promises. He's more than enough for the Gentiles, those who are separated from the promises of God and who have no hope apart from God taking the initiative to come and to pursue them. He's more than enough for the Gentiles as well. It's this theme that we see as we see His initiative and His compassion and His provision to meet the physical needs of the people in Mark chapter 8. But do you know that it wasn't just the physical needs that Jesus had met? I love how this comes out in Mark chapter 6 because we see in Mark chapter 6 it said that Jesus had compassion on the crowd so He taught them. And I love that because it, it kind of changes what we would think in our heads. So we think, well, he had compassion on them because he knew they were hungry and they would, they would grow weary and need to be fed. Yes, Jesus is going to meet their physical need. But do you know when he had compassion on them, he taught them. Because what we need, not only just having our stomachs filled, we need to have our minds filled with the truth and the knowledge of who God is. And he most likely taught them about the kingdom of God and about how the kingdom of God had uh, come in, in his arrival and, and what it meant to belong to the kingdom of God. The very kind of thing that you would see taught in the Sermon on the Mount or in Jesus teaching his disciples about the, the parables and the nature of the kingdom of God and how it would come in a small way and grow big. And, and how there would be those who, uh, who are responsive to the gospel and those who aren't responsive. He'd unpack all of this for his disciples and for those who were listening in the crowd. And it says not only here that he didn't only just do that for a day, but they had been with him three days and they weren't just talking about the weather and how it was absolutely crazy that San Diego State hit that shot with 0.6 seconds left to beat Florida Atlantic. Right. I mean, man, I wanted Florida Atlantic to win. Uh, Jesus wasn't just shooting the breeze and talking the, the scores of the day. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God for three days. He fed their souls. And he fed their stomachs. He cared for them holistically as a person and as people. He had compassion on them. Compassion on people perhaps who the disciples didn't want him to have compassion on them. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't quite understand what he was doing with the Syrophoenician woman. They didn't quite understand what, uh, what all he was unpacking with the Pharisees at times as he talked about what made us unclean, not what goes in our bodies, what comes out of our hearts. They didn't always get it, but yet Jesus is here meeting the needs of people out of an overflow of his compassion. And we see that when Jesus meets needs, he's always more than enough. He not only fed them, but there was more left over. When he fed the 5,000, there are 12 baskets left over, which no doubt was a picture of the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the fullness of God's provision for the people of Israel. Just like God had, through Moses, fed Israel in the wilderness. If you read about that in Exodus with manna from heaven, Jesus is coming and is fulfilling all of the promises of God to Israel. While here we have this picture of seven, which no doubt uh, is a significant number uh, in, in Old Testament um, Old Testament tradition and Jewish tradition, the number of wholeness and completeness. The message of the leftovers after Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 is that Jesus is more than enough. He meets the needs of people out of an overflow of his compassion. And when Jesus meets needs, 
He's always more than enough. And consider the, the full implication of that as he met the, the full needs of the people here in, in Mark chapter 8. The, the significance of knowing that Jesus is more than enough for us. Knowing that we can trust him to provide for our needs. Knowing that we can bring to him our greatest struggles and our greatest burdens. And that he will be more than enough, more than sufficient to meet us. It means he's more than enough Not only for the Jew and the Gentile, as we see in Mark 6 and Mark 8, but he's more than enough for our sin, for our shame, for our guilt. He's more than enough to to forgive us of of our sin and to remove our shame and to free us from our guilt. He's more than enough in our trials and our sufferings. To know that as we go through and we feel like we're wanting and waiting, that in that moment, he is more than enough, that he's there for us, that he provides for us, that he's more than enough, even in abundance and blessing. And in fact, the abundance and blessing is evidence of his grace and his provision in our lives. To believe that he's more than enough means that he's more than enough for everyone who will come to him. Everyone who comes to him aware of their need and willing to receive his provision, they will not be disappointed when they come to Jesus. No one who comes to Jesus aware of their need and willing to receive his provision is ever turned away empty handed. He's more than enough. That's the the point that Mark 8 verses 1 through 10 press home. And and can can I just... Encourage us to think about this for a minute as well. Thinking about here, Jesus feeding the 4,000, most likely Gentiles. In Mark 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000, primarily uh, Jews in that situation. Can I, can I just bring together what we've talked about the last few weeks as Jesus has been ministering in these Gentile regions? Can I tell you that some of the people that you think are farthest from God are actually most open and willing to receive his word? If you won't presume that they're against him. And can I, can I also encourage you not to ever write anyone off thinking that they have no interest in God? And as you don't write anyone off, couple that with this thought. Don't ever underestimate the compelling power of Jesus' love and compassion. What a good word for us to, to remember. That sometimes we're looking at people who we think who maybe wouldn't care. That Jesus is in town. But they stayed with him for three days. Listening to what he had to say. And when people meet the, the, the love and the compassion of Jesus. It can often overcome the hardest of hearts. God calls us to reflect that love and compassion as we minister to others. As we interact with others. Now, to be reminded not to, to write someone off. Or to think that someone who presents themselves as far from God may actually not be open and receptive to what he has to say. Jesus is always teaching us not only about himself, but how we ought to minister to others in the very same path and footsteps of Jesus. So the truth about Jesus is that he is more than enough. But then there's the struggle to see Jesus rightly. In verse 11, it says, after they fed the 4,000, Jesus sent them away and then he got into the boats and he went with his disciples to the district of uh, Dalmanutha, which is kind of an area that we're not exactly clear where it's at. But it's, uh, there is a region nearby that most, most, uh, most people think that Jesus went to. And as he arrived, as often is the case when Jesus got to the shore off a boat ride, there were people waiting to see him. This time it was the Pharisees. 
And we're going to see the Pharisees demanding a sign in verses 11 through 13. And then we're going to see the disciples in verses 14 through 21 not understanding Jesus' teaching. The Pharisees demand a sign. The, the disciples uh, struggle uh, to, uh, to understand what Jesus is warning them about. And, and here we see the struggle to see Jesus rightly. And I, I say struggle here because that's the disciples' problem. The Pharisees' problem is not to struggle to see Jesus, but there's an unwillingness to see Jesus. And what I want you to understand in the struggle uh, to see Jesus rightly is that there is a difference between refusing to see and struggling to see. And the Pharisees have marked themselves as those who are refusing to see Jesus. They come to Jesus and they begin to argue with him. And they begin to seek from him a sign. They want to test him, it says at the end of verse 11. And here, just like Jesus did last week as he healed the man who was deaf and mute, Jesus sighed deeply. In the face of their hard-heartedness, we learned last week that in the face of the brokenness of sin... We have the sigh of faith as Jesus looked at the brokenness of sin and and this man who was deaf and mute, he sighed. It's the groaning of wanting for creation to be made new. Here Jesus sighs because he sees the effect of unbelief and the hardness of hearts of the Pharisees. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat and he went to the other side. It's a short encounter, but it's a telling encounter. And it speaks to the the culmination of the Pharisees' conflict with Jesus. They they not only had been asking him questions, trying to, to get him to articulate who he was and his identity and trying to understand exactly what he was claiming. But here they come to the point where no longer are they interested in understanding who Jesus is, but they demand some visible uh, sign, some attesting to his divine authority. Even though they had either seen or heard Jesus heal the sick, Jesus cast out demons, Jesus raised the dead, Jesus healed the lame, Jesus healed the blind, Jesus healed the mute. They had seen these things. And when they saw it, they said, that's not the power of God, that's the power of Satan. They saw what God had done, but they were unwilling to see Jesus for who he was. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25, the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews demanded a sign, some outward demonstration to show who God was. The Greeks wanted wisdom, some some eloquent uh, instruction concerning Jesus to impress the ear. The Jews wanted something to impress the sight. God gave us the folly of the cross. That God would hang on a cross. And Jesus is telling us, The power of God is revealed in the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The wisdom of God is that God would save us from our sins by dying in our place for our sins. That's the the, the world looks at the cross and says foolishness, weakness. But God says power and wisdom. And it comes to those who are willing to see and to believe 
But the Jews, uh, particularly the Pharisees here, are unwilling to see. And they are rejecting who Jesus claims to be. And Jesus leaves them. And goes in the boat back to the other side. The Jews are unwilling, the, the Pharisees in particular here, are unwilling to see Jesus for who he is. And it reminds us that there are some who are unwilling to see Jesus. If you've been a teacher before or you've been in class, some of you are students, uh, I hope you're not this person. But there's always that student, some of the uh, professors in here might relate to this. You know that student um, who asks a question not to make an inquiry about something, but who asks a question to make a point and, and perhaps even prove the professor wrong. Right. Like there's this sense of testing, the sense of I'm not here to inquire. I'm here to uh, to provoke. I'm here to make a statement Uh, that that sense of I have no willingness to actually hear what you have to say. I actually just want you to hear what I have to say in my question form, uh, my statement formed as a question. Right. Uh, And and here's that's the Pharisees not asking to inquire, but asking to test. Asking to prove wrong, seeking to trip up Jesus, an an unwillingness, a closed offness, arms folded, not willing to hear what Jesus really has to say. Their minds decided what's really true about Jesus. And Jesus will leave us in our unwillingness to see. But then we see in the disciples... The struggle to see. It says that uh, they had forgotten their bread in the boat and only one loaf was with them. And, and then Jesus took the occasion and he taught them saying this. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And that's when we read this earlier. I broke the 5,000. How many loaves were left over? They said 12. And I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000. How many were left over? They said seven. And then he asked in verse 21, do you still not understand? It's interesting if you go back and read in Mark chapter 6, their boat ride after Jesus fed the 5,000, it says that they didn't understand what Jesus was teaching because their hearts were hardened. Even the disciples were struggling to see and understand what Jesus was doing. And in fact, the, the language of sight... Here in a moment, we're going to see Jesus heal a blind man in a very unique way. And I think all of it ties together to emphasize this point of our need to see and the struggle to see Jesus rightly. And I said earlier, there's a difference between refusing to see and struggling to see. And I want to press this further because what Jesus, Jesus does not critique the disciples for their unwillingness to have blind faith. You know, sometimes Christianity gets knocked for being a, a religion that requires blind faith. The Bible says it, so I believe it. The, uh, you check your brain at the door, just take a leap into the dark and, and just believe. And, and, that, and that, that kind of um, shallow understanding, oftentimes a, a student can take that and then never really grow in their understanding and knowledge of their faith and of God's word. And they can get absolutely raked over the coals as they enter into a university setting and people ask questions and challenge them. And they can feel like, well, I just kind of believed it because that's what I thought. And now I'm being pressed to consider it and I'm just going to kind of cast it to the side and, and, and kind of go this different direction. Jesus is not critiquing the disciples for not having blind faith. God is not asking us to have blind faith. 
Blind faith is not uh, the call of, of Christianity. What Jesus is asking the disciples is actually a very reasoned thing. He says, do you not understand? Seeing what you've seen, do you not understand what this means? Jesus has been seeking to teach them. Not because he wanted them to have blind faith, but because he wanted them to have understanding that led to faith. And that in our faith, we would continue to seek and grow in our knowledge and understanding. That's how these two things work. We see that Jesus desires we would understand and so come to believe. And then Jesus desires that in believing we would grow in understanding. This is, as I said at the beginning, not another reason why we're people under authority. We believe that God's word is meant for us to grow in knowledge and understanding. And as we grow in understanding more about God, what does it do? It increases our faith. And what happens when our faith increases? It increases our hunger to grow and know more about who God is. And that these two things work mutually together. A blind faith is not the kind of faith that Jesus commends no more than the, the kind of spirit that thinks pridefully that we have it all figured out. We don't need God's help. No, Jesus wants us to have a humility and an earnestness and an eagerness to seek the truth, to, to seek Him, to understand Him and believe, to see and believe. And Jesus is, is here critiquing the disciples, not because they just don't believe, but because they don't understand what they've seen. They haven't taken in what he's heard. I, I pointed this out last week in the parable of the story that Jesus told the Syrophoenician woman. From what I could tell, the Syrophoenician woman is the first person who accurately understands the parable that Jesus teaches without Jesus explaining it. And the reason is, is because she put herself in the story. She was willing to receive what Jesus said, even though at first glance it looked like an insult. When he said that the kids at the table have to eat before the dogs eat. She said, yeah, I get that. Jesus. I, I, I know I don't deserve to come, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And Jesus said, because of this statement, your daughter's healed. In faith, she put herself in the story. She received what Jesus was said and applied it to ourselves. The Pharisees weren't willing to apply it to themselves. They weren't willing to see their need and their pride. And the disciples are not fully understanding. Jesus is saying, no, he's more than enough. You can trust him. God wants us to put ourselves in the story, to receive his word, to apply it to our lives, to be willing to hear him speaking as if he were speaking to us, to accept it, to obey it. And as we do, he grows us in our knowledge and understanding. He he grows us in our faith. Jesus wants us to understand that we might believe and he wants us in our believing to continually grow in understanding. Jesus warned the disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, two different people. Herod was violently opposed uh, to Jesus and the Pharisees were philosophically opposed to Jesus. And they were marked by hypocrisy and hardness of heart, whereas Herod was marked by hostility and opposition to Jesus. And it's once more a reminder that you can avoid Jesus in a lot of different ways. You can avoid Jesus by being good. You can avoid Jesus by being bad. One's called hypocrisy. One's called licentiousness. You can go and live in immorality or you can seek to live in morality. Looking down your nose as being better than others or living in immorality. Hoping as much as you can to numb yourself to any reality of God or responsibility to Him by doing whatever you please. 
Beware of unbelief. Uh, beware of an unwillingness and a hardness of heart. Be, be, be weary or wary, if you will, of, of allowing for there to be the festering of doubt that you don't bring to Jesus. To, to allow the, the kind of thought of, well, I can kind of do my own thing and be cool with Jesus. Be leery of trusting yourself in the doubt and in the, in the, the kind of uh, drifting away from God. Jesus is saying, watch your heart. Watch out. Beware of this leaven a little bit. Eleven is the, the, basically the, 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 old, uh, the old yeast from, the, uh, from previous loaves that was kept. A small batch that would allow for the rising in the bread. And he's saying just a little bit goes a long way. A little bit of unbelief can lead us down a dangerous place. A little bit of unchecked sinful desires can lead us further than we want to go. A little bit of opposition in our hearts because we wish God wouldn't have done this or he would have done this and not done that can can lead us towards a further hardening of our heart towards God and his word. A little bit of struggling to believe something without being brought to God and even brought into community with others can can lead us further from God. Not because God is not able to handle our questions and not able to answer uh, our questions or, or help us wrestle through our doubts. There's place and room for that, not only before God, but in this church. But often what we think to ourselves is that God can't handle that. I don't want to bring that up. The the people will think I'm crazy for having this struggle. Doubt. Unbelief. Unchecked sinful desires in isolation. Always prove to be deadly. So just bring it. Bring it to God. Bring it to him. Bring it to community with other people who help, you, who help you sort through these things. Just like I said in the beginning, we're not people who have it all figured out. We adamantly believe we don't have it figured out, but we trust God does. So there's no pride when you say, I'm struggling to believe this. Often it'll be met with, I too have struggled to believe something. If not that, something else. There's no pride when we say, 